From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're listening to Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. From the Rocky Mountains of Denver, Colorado, my name is Charlie Robinson. Thank you for hanging out with me for the next hour. If you want to connect with me directly, you can do so via email, charlierobinson at tntradio.live. You can follow me on Twitter at Macroaggressions, where I argue with robots. And you can go to my website, The Octopus of Global Control, and find all the information about what I'm up to behind the scenes. But let's start first with some headlines for today, Friday. December 22nd, 2003, 23, I should say. Uh, Americans are dreading the holidays as one in three go into debt to pay for holiday shopping. This according to Zero Hedge. Already 25% of Americans are forced to use credit cards to bridge the normal monthly spending gap on food, gas, rent. It's hard to feel grateful when you're flooded with debt, but I will ask people to... Take a step back, take a breath, realize it's just money, and we're all going to be equal when the economic collapse hits later this coming year. Consortium News reports, Day X is here. Julian Assange final appeal set for February. It's going to happen on February 20th and the 21st of 2024 uh, in London. It will be Assange's last appeal against being extradited to the United States to face charges of violating the Espionage Act. I had a chance to meet with the family of the Assange, of Julian Assange, his uh, father and brother, two summers ago with Steve Poikin and my guest from uh, yesterday over at the Denver Press Club. We had a, just the four of us had a really good conversation about the state of affairs with Julian Assange. This is a topic that needs to stay fresh and in the headlines. We need to always remember that this is a crime to keep this man jailed and that um, any attempt by the UK government to send him to the United States would be essentially signing his death warrant. So keep Julian Assange in your thoughts this Christmas. Um, he's going to need it. And from the great Rich Willett over at davidike.com, China's plan to build global technocracy using artificial intelligence. This article is scary. It gets into the technocratic state of China, what they have planned for uh, their uh, citizens in the coming years. I hint, it's not good. And it also talks about what has already rolled out, a social credit system that has taken over cities such as Shenzhen, which is tied to your Weibo account and um, very dystopian in nature. It goes into a full social credit score from that point forward. And of course, this is the sort of thing that is looking to be exported to the West in the coming years. And finally, this is my last show before Christmas. So I wanted to make sure to send my love and appreciation to everybody who makes my show possible. Big thanks to the guys in the studio. Every day they keep me sane. They make me look as good as well, as good as I can look, I guess, in 4K. So thank you to the to the fellows there. We appreciate you. Also to my producer who helps me uh in ways that I desperately need. So thank you to her and also to the owners of TNT Radio for giving me a place to to bring my flavor of insanity to the world, I certainly do appreciate it. Um, it's uh, it's been a it's been a great place for me to um, to speak to you guys over the last eight months as a Saturday show, and now recently in the month of December, 
as we go to Monday through Friday format. It's really been a blast for me. I'm excited for 2024. I think if you're listening to TNT Radio these days, you have got yourself a fantastic source of news information in a world that is filled with very compromised news sources. So keep this as a part of your media daily diet and tell your friends and uh, family members about it because 2024 is going to be the year in which TNT Radio really takes off. We've gone from the radio portion to obviously the video side now. And uh, in 2024 is going to be a wild year, especially in the United States where we have our selection. I mean, election process that will be happening in November. I'm sure there won't be any sort of nonsense surrounding that. Wink, wink. And um, and it's going to get weird out there and you're going to need an anchor for the storm. So hopefully you will consider TNT radio to be a place where you can get some unbiased news. You get some opinions on both sides of the political spectrum. And also, you know, people that are sort of done with it all, I would throw myself in that camp. So uh, thank you all for being a part of this and, and make sure to, uh, to stay with us in, in the following year as we embark on our mission to bring you the news as it's really happening, not some sort of corporate watered down version of it. So thanks to everybody that makes this show possible. At TNT Radio, we never go home. We are committed to bringing you our take on the biggest topics of our time. We broadcast live 24-7 online globally, no matter what. We've got you covered on TNT Radio. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, just in time for Christmas, on Friday, the White House announced that President Joe Biden will commute the sentences of nearly a dozen nonviolent drug offenders, reportedly as part of his stated desire to use his clemency powers to rectify what he has said are unjustified disparities in drug sentencing. Here with the story, joining me now is TNT Radio News producer Adam Clark, aka Ruckus. Oh, Ruckus, let's get into this because this sounds fascinating, but also wildly hypocritical for Joe Biden to talk about writing the injustices of the drug sentencing laws when he was deeply involved in the 1994 U.S. crime bill, which created the drug sentencing laws. What a gigantic hypocrite, but I guess better late than never, right? Right? Yeah, well, I mean, come on, didn't you know, Charlie, this is part of his continued effort to uh, right this wrong. He, this is this, he's all about this, man. This is all he talks about all day long, every day. Everyone knows it. This is his big campaign promise. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's just trying to score some street street cred, I guess, is the expression to uh, bring a little weight to his otherwise uh, boring and lame BS lip service. Uh, but this is good news for the 11 individuals who, uh, as President Biden's said, quote, would have been eligible to receive significantly lower sentences if they were charged with the same offense today, end quote. The president will also apparently sign a proclamation to pardon certain marijuana offenses, building on action that he took in October 2022 to pardon thousands of Americans who were convicted of simple marijuana possession. You mean he hasn't done anything about this since then? Uh-oh. Um, this must be an election season. This expanded pardon proclamation, like its predecessor, only applies to U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents. The White House said explicitly, quote, it does not apply to individuals who were non-citizens, not lawfully present in the United States at the time of their offense. End quote. In terms of scope, 
The new pardon forgives federal and Washington, D.C. offenses for, quote, simple, simple possession of marijuana, attempted simple possession of marijuana or use of marijuana, end quote, regardless of whether the offenders, quote, have been charged with or prosecuted for these offenses on or before the date of this proclamation, end quote, meaning that it will cover people who committed cannabis possession crimes after President Biden's initial October 2022 pardon. All right. That makes up for it. Cool. The new pardon does not apply to those who have been jailed for selling marijuana, which, of course, remains a federal crime, nor for other marijuana offenses such as driving under the influence of an illegal substance. Neither does it affect people who violated state law. Uh, President Biden said in a statement, quote, criminal records for marijuana use and possession have imposed needless barriers to employment, housing and educational opportunities. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right those wrongs, these wrongs, just as no one should be in a federal prison solely due to the use or possession of marijuana. No one should be in a local jail or state prison for that reason either, end quote. At least that's what the president said. And he called on governors to, quote, do the same with regard to state offenses and applaud those who have since taken action, end quote. Um, the move comes as the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, is weighing a recommendation from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to reclassify marijuana as a Schedule Three substance. That would place it in the same category as low-risk prescription drugs, this HHS proposal itself stemmed from a review that President Biden ordered last October when he issued his initial marijuana pardon action. Marijuana is currently listed in Schedule 1, which is crazy. That's a category for drugs with no currently accepted medical use <laughs> and a high potential for abuse, along with heroin, LSD, and crack cocaine. Uh, yeah, if you know anything about marijuana, it's nothing like any of those at all. Cannabis advocates have long claimed that moving marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 would boost drug research, generate more revenue, and result in fewer arrests. In September, the HHS made a formal recommendation that cannabis be moved out of Schedule 1 and into Schedule 3. The DEA, which has the final say on whether to reclassify the drug under federal law, because they're scientists, you know, uh, is still reviewing the proposal. Um, and yeah, as I was alluding to earlier, Charlie, back in his 2020 campaign promises, President Biden somewhere in there was Something about a pledge to, quote, decriminalize cannabis use and automatically expunge prior convictions, end quote. Uh, he also he supported at the time. So here we are, uh, quote, the legalization of cannabis for medical purposes, end quote, arguing that decisions regarding legalization for recreational use should be left up to the states. Um, so there we have it, Charlie. Too little, too late. Or is this good news? What do you think? Well, what are we doing with the the people that Kamala Harris put in prison for marijuana possession and charges like that? Have we consulted with with her? Because I'd love to know her thoughts on this entire thing, because while simultaneously claiming to be a pot smoker herself, she certainly spent a disproportionate amount of time locking up people in the state of California on marijuana charges. So the hypocrisy here is overflowing. The fact that the White House tested everybody that uh, before they started, asked them if they used marijuana in the pre previously or currently. And if they said yes to either one of them, they fired them. And then we have the president, let's not forget, whose son is, is on film smoking crack cocaine with prostitutes. So... 
you know, just excuse me if I'm not uh, willing to stand up and give Joe Biden a round of applause for this, because I distinctly remember him talking about, and you can find the videos as well, of him talking about raves back in the 90s. He said, we need to find out where they're holding these rave parties and bulldoze the buildings that they're in. This is, so. of course, I know that that's not marijuana, but um, this is his policy towards drugs. When he was uh, working in Congress back in the 90s, he worked with George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton to to pass the 1994 Crime Act, which set the sentencing guidelines. He was in charge of the sentencing guidelines. And he was the one that, that suggested that they give you a five-year mandatory minimum for rock cocaine, but only uh, a much lighter sentence if you had powdered cocaine, because in his words, powdered cocaine was a white drug. That's wasn't racist, much, Charlie. Wasn't, wasn't much of a question there. It was more of just a rant, because when, you, when I hear Joe Biden talk about how he's going to just, he's going to swoop into action and free these people from jail cells, which they never should have been in, um, Yes, correct. You should be doing that. But this should have you should have never even built the private prison industry to begin with, which, of course, Joe Biden was deeply involved with. So so it just feels very disingenuous to hear it coming from this crowd in particular that have uh, made their bones by putting people in prison on disproportionately large stretches just for for possession, not even distribution or anything like that. Simple possession of crack cocaine will get you five years mandatory minimum in a federal prison, which means that you're no longer eligible to vote. You can't hold a job from that point forward, and you're basically dependent on the state. So congratulations to Joe Biden for letting 12 people out. Okay, I mean, I guess for those people, it's going to be a very Merry Christmas, and they should have never been in there for uh, possession of a plant. But um, I live in the state of Colorado, and Denver and, and the state of Colorado, it's legal to go buy marijuana wherever you want. There's all kinds of stores here, but it's illegal on a federal level, which always felt very hypocritical and 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 very difficult if you're trying to run one of these cannabis businesses here in the state and not just Colorado, but, but half the states in the US have it legalized in some form or fashion. It's very difficult because you cannot even get banking for it because it is still a schedule one drug that is um, that needs to be reclassified. Any chance that we're going to get reclassification in the new year, or is this just empty promises from a, from a brain-dead old man? That's the big one, Charlie. I'm, I certainly am not going to hold my breath because, you know, I know what happens if you hold your breath for too long, you pass out and or die. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, but it would be nice, and it is long overdue, in my opinion. Um, I'm not encouraging everyone to go out and start using marijuana, but the, the way they do this has damaged and ruined so many lives. It's just the biggest excuse to throw people into the prison system and, and make some money off of that because we know how that works. Um, it also serves a, a beautiful political purpose. Um, and also, let's not forget, Charlie, why on earth is there so much hatred thrown away towards marijuana uh, if it's just serving a couple purpose? Oh, wait a minute. Maybe because it's the biggest threat to the big pharma uh, garbage. Uh, that's my personal opinion. There's plenty of science to back that up. So I think that that's one of the biggest reasons why this uh, gets the short end of the stick all the time. Poor marijuana, reefer madness. Yeah, yeah, you know what they say, you know, it's it's a gateway drug. Once you once you start on that, it's a gateway towards getting off of big pharma medicines. That's the problem that they're that they're actually worried about. Thanks Ruckus. Uh, hey, Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week. Have a great one. Thanks Charlie, you too. Merry Christmas. All right. Well, on the uh
After the break, we'll be back with Pasta Jardula. After that, we've got Gerard Filetti. This is TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which which is to destroy Hamas. I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40 California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a $1,000 a day fine. Government that stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%. You know, 99.8% survival, rather than the three or 4% mortality that the, the people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them. This is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. TNTradio.live. Online. Online. Online streaming. Be a part of the conversation. I stream it all at work and I stream it to my phone and listen to it wherever I go. TNT. We're back with the Charlie Robinson Show. My next guest is 
one of the guys I talk to, if I want to know what's actually happening with elections anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, really, you want to talk about South America, Central America, there's only one guy that I know will get on an airplane, fly down there, talk to the people you're not supposed to talk to, and figure out what the hell is actually going on. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig, Pasta Jardula. Hey, Pasta, what's going on? It's great to see you. How are you? Ah, oh, man, I'm doing great, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for that great compliment. I really love doing what I'm doing, and I'm glad there's people out there like you who really appreciate the work I do do. I do appreciate it. You are relentless, and uh, you know I don't trust the mainstream media at all. So uh, I know you. I trust you. If you say it's happening, it's because you're seeing it with your own eyes. And speaking of seeing it with your own eyes, getting on an airplane and figuring out what the hell is going on, You've been in Maui um, on multiple occasions. Uh, you and I have talked extensively about this, not just on on my, sh uh, my show Macroaggressions, but also just on the phone, trying to figure out what is happening. Can you tell me, what is the state of affairs in Maui now? How far out are we? We're a couple of months away from the fires. And um, we've, you know, it's obviously moved yeah. off of the, the the media, you know, off the 24-hour news cycle. It's done. There's nothing more to report there. But the people are still there and they're suffering. What have you found last time you were there? You know, I just got off the phone with somebody who I met in Maui the first trip out there. It's about 125 days out now since the fire. I think about 130 days. We're somewhere around there. Uh, you know, I showed up in Maui uh, 27 days after the fire. So it was just less than a month. Uh, then I returned 100 days after because I know there was so much stuff going on that we had to report on it. And like you said, Charlie, mainstream media, nowhere to be found. Uh, it is a shame. Uh, and it's almost like, you know, people I've talked to, they've said, you know, people have forgotten about Maui. There's a little bit of confusion going on right now, a little back and forth between uh, a lot of media within the state and just the locals about suicides that are taking place. Um, a lot of people are brushing them off as if they're just overdoses. Uh, but a lot of these people, you know, they were suicidal. Uh, they don't know what they'll have to go back to, if they'll be able to go back to anything at, at any time soon. Housing is still a mess. The governor, the mayor, they're still trying to figure out what they can do. There's close to 6,500 people who are unhoused. Uh, their housing is supposed to come to an end, but they're supposedly now going to get a little bit of extension. But if you know anything about that housing, Charlie, uh, it's just the pits when you're living hotel to hotel. They're moving you around. Uh, they can come in and inspect at any time. Um, somebody got thrown out of a hotel room for using a rice cooker, for crying out loud. Um, <clears throat> so it's not the best living out there. The small housing that's been going up, uh, it's been very small at best. I mean, uh, the last time we were out there, we were driving to the airport. There was a stack of those small houses that were donated from, from Europe out there. They can't get them up because the HOAs are suing to keep them down. Um, so it's still a mess. And it's almost like Katrina, where there was this crazy catastrophe that was reported on by the mainstream media. But shortly after that catastrophe, uh, the mainstream media and the whole world said, goodbye, it's over here, no more story, and they left. People have cried to me that they've forgotten about Maui, and Maui is still suffering. They're still in the middle of this housing crisis, and people are leaving the island every day. Uh, people still uh, have a lot of hope. Uh, the cleaning process, they're still fighting amongst each other on what to do. Should they uh, you know, put the soil tag stuff into the ashes so it doesn't get kicked up in the air? Um, and the trauma. I mean, you, you can relate. I mean, you walk by that high school that was right there on the water and whatnot. It's gone. It was one of the oldest high schools that was up in the United States. They used to say the oldest high school west of the Mason-Dixon at one point. It's gone. And a lot of people's lives and hopes 
uh, are gone. I mean, just imagine uh, everything you've ever known. You get up one day, you go to work, you leave, and you come back, and you're not allowed to even go see it. It's gone. It's gone forever. Uh, and there's still just a, a ton of trauma that people are dealing with in Lahaina and Maui in general. Yeah, it's a Maui's a very special place to me personally. I was there about a year ago and spent a lot of time there. Yeah, I walked by this uh, this school that said established 1906, and I, I I was with my daughter and I said, "Take a look at that. Could you imagine sitting in that class, looking out the window at the surf break going on out there? You'd be dreaming about getting out in there." getting out of your math class and grabbing your surfboard, you know, it seemed like a very distracting place to be, but of course, a beautiful, a beautiful location. And of course, Maui itself has a deep history and the people of Maui have a very unusual relationship. Maybe you might even say a paranoid relationship with their government and rightfully so. We've seen what the American government has done to the Hawaiian people. And um, and in Maui, I get a lot, you mentioned Katrina. I get those vibes, the same sort of vibes. It feels like a, a gigantic slush fund, a lot of money flowing into certain places, but never reaching the actual victims that need it the most. And of course you mentioned trauma, boy, that's such a, a in, immeasurable. I mean, how do you quantify the suffering of these people? They have nowhere else to go. This isn't like you can just pack up and move inland too far. There's there there's only so much island there. And um, and we're gonna go. Let's do this. Uh, let's jump out for a quick news break because on the on the other side of this, I want to get into you about sort of the the situation with eminent domain and the options that they have with the vacation rentals trying to take over that. So let's drop out for a quick news break. We'll be right back with Pasta Jardula. Today's News Talk Radio. We, we, we do have some big news. What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it now? TNT Radio News. For TNT Radio News, this is James O'Neill. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused the United States of guiding Western efforts to identify legal ways to appropriate Russian assets globally for Ukraine's benefit. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick expressed confidence in the legality of a Texas state law that permits law enforcement to arrest people suspected of illegal entry into the state. Czech authorities have identified the man responsible for a mass shooting in Prague as David Kay, a 24-year-old student. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. We're speaking with Pasta Jardula, the producer of the documentary series Maui on Fire. Um, Pasta, let's talk a little bit about what the governor of Hawaii has suggested for turning vacation rentals into long-term rentals. Uh, I know from 25 years in the, working in the real estate industry that if you own vacation properties, you're owning them for a very different reason. You're looking for sure you, you want short-term rentals, long-term rentals lock in at a much lower rate for you as a as a a homeowner, you you're you're not going to get the sort of returns that you're looking for. If the government steps in and makes these vacation rental owners whole uh, on 
for what they would normally charge, what they would normally make if they were to go back and show their their tax returns for the last couple of years and show what they're used to generating as far as revenue, I think we could probably solve this problem. Just throw it. This could be one of those cases where you could throw money at a problem and make parts of it go away. But they're not going to do that, are they? Yeah. Because they, you know, Charlie, that's the thing. I was just on the phone with somebody talking about it. There was this thing called the Minotoyas list, right? And the Minotoyas list had all these short-term properties, and it was about 2,200 of those properties. And, you know, you've been to Maui before. Like, you know, for tax reasons, they're going to make sure the state can collect every bit of dollar there. So if you have an Airbnb and you have to register Airbnb, you got to make sure you're registered with the state and they know what's going on. Well, they've moved away from that Minotoyas list, and they've gone to the whole kit and caboodle, which is all the short-term housing. You know, for good reasons or for, you know, um, publicity reasons, the mayor and the governor have both been yelling that they're going to turn these short term housings into long term housings. But like you just talked about, <laughs> you got to make them whole. You know, you got two, three bedrooms in some parts of Maui where the people have made almost a half a million dollars a year on these things because they're constantly turning it over. So I don't know if the state's willing to go that far. I think they're trying to meet somewhere in the middle in between what a long term would be and what the people would normally make. But that's not going to be enough to make a lot of people take the bait. You know, unfortunately, we live in a capitalist society uh, where, you know, freedom of land and, you know, all that stuff that property rights mean so much. So how do you tell somebody who made an investment what they have to do with that investment, regardless of a uh, a crisis? You know, um, obviously me, you know, I have my socialist roots in me and I think the government should do that. But, you know, the government has been one of the biggest problems right there. They they haven't put in legislation to even allow uh, tiny houses to go up. And those HOAs are getting them shut down. So the county itself, a lot of people always talk about big money interest, BlackRock, you know, Vanguard, all these guys coming in, want to swoop up this area, Lahaina, the old capital of Hawaii before it was colonized, when it was the kingdom. Uh, but right now, one of the biggest problems is the county. The county is flat-footed. They're not acting. They're not acting on the cleanup. They're not acting on the housing situation. And that's, you know, people are leaving the island every day, Charlie. Because even if you do get them housing, a lot of people have no jobs to go back to. Lahaina is done. Front Street is done. It's not going to be up and working for quite some time. Uh, and that's the great thing about Lahaina on Fire, the second part, too, as well. As we saw some uh, uh, small business owners, the guy who owned Maui Toy Works down there in Front Street, you might have been in there before. Well, that was burnt down to a crisp. Well, he was able to transition his whole business online, and he has these little beanie babies that he's now selling online that say Maui Strong, and the birth is the date of the fire on August, and it has a little story, and he's put lays on them and whatnot. So he's been able to su survive and you know repair the bridge and while things are going on, but not all the business owners can do that. Some of all the business owners are, are stuck like Chuck, and there's nowhere for them to go. We actually spoke to a guy, the hat I'm wearing, outrageous right here, surf shop, uh, the guy who gives surf lessons. It was 100 days after the uh, fire, and he was able to give me his first surf lesson in quite some time. He lost everything in his shop, so all these old boards that he was going to throw away or give away or you know do whatever, he's now refurbishing them, tr just trying to put the pieces together, trying to do whatever he can do to stay on that island. And that's what the fight is right now, is to stay on that island. Another thing, Charlie, if you go to Pasta to Go, the, the number two, and you see the first film, Lahaina on Fire, we kind of showed these distribution centers, a lot of these distribution centers where the citizens were taking care of the citizens. Well, yeah. they're going to close up all those distribution centers at the end of this month. They're no longer going to be able to exist. The county says no more for health regulations. So that's going away, too, despite them still being used by the citizens. Like I've said from the get-go, this story 
has only begun. We're in the bottom. We're in the top of the second right now with nine innings uh, to play. Yeah, it's really a shame. I'm curious, Pasta, what is the response so far from the insurance companies? Have they been able to get on board with this? Have they have they made any? I mean, listen, we know that the value of the structure, you know, the value of the home is in the land, not the structure. And so we we understand that there's there's going to be a gap between that. But even even on the structural side of the insurance, have they been paying out claims? Have they been dragging their feet? What have the people been uh, reporting about that? little of column A, a little of column B. Some people don't have the proper paperwork to get the insurance to get paid. You know why? Because that paperwork was in the house with the fire that got, you know, torched. So they're going through the whole process and the whole steps of trying to get their, their documentations in line. Some people have had a crazy difficult time. Some people have gotten lucky and gotten paid. So it's been a little bit of A and a little bit of B uh, with that whole, whole situation, Charlie. Yeah. Well, what's the overall vibe there? Because we know that the that the Hawaiian people are are very they're very warm, but they're very distrustful. And um, I'm curious to know what the, have they turned on the local government in Maui? Are they are they seeing them as the enemy? I mean, listen, if you're closing distribution centers for health reasons, what could be what could trump the health reason of keeping these people alive that need food and resources? And I mean, I'm not under I'm not following their logic. Is this yeah. is this a problem that the locals are having as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, they distrust their government. They distrust outsiders until you get to know them. But, you know, I mean, luckily for me, I'm a people's guy and I can get in there and, you know, I was able to make connections and go back. And I'm very fortunate uh, that that is my gift because it really comes into play in situations like that. Uh, but still, you you hit it right on the nose. The energy and the attitude of these people very distrusting, uh, and a lot of people are very upset and disgusted with that local government. However, there are a lot of uh, people that they do trust, and that was one thing we also highlighted inside the movie. Um, we were able to talk to Ellie Cochran. Ellie Cochran is the House representative in the district of Lahaina, uh, and she had a distribution herself. Uh, but that's also a problem, Charlie. A lot of these people, too, were thrusted into the situation because it was a dramatic situation. So they just went they went to work. They, they, it was emergency. You know, that, that was the mind. Let's get into that mode. Uh, but now as things are kind of like, you know, uh, as, they, as they progressed, you know, money's come in. People have argued what to do with the money. There's obviously people fighting each other uh, on what, how, what resources to get and, you know, how, who to help, how to help. So a lot of that is is happening because also that trauma that they push back in the back of their head for the people who worked in these distribution centers, they're now having to deal with that, you know, a hundred and something odd days after where they kind of stood away and masked it. It's it's coming out. The overall feeling of a lot of people there is sad, is upset. You know, there was a guy who didn't trust me when I first got there. He didn't know who I was. But, you know, before I left, I gave him my number. He called me the other day. He's like, people have forgotten about Maui. And it seems like the recovery process might be as bad as the fire itself, you know, and yeah. that's that's just a shame. So it's it's this awful situation that's happened. And I, and I got to say this much, too. Not only the Maui local government and the county who's dragged their feet with the federal government. I don't see the Army Corps of Engineer, Engineers in there. I don't see the manpower in there. If they want to really treat this crisis seriously, they would have got in there, had conversations, cleaned this place up and broke ground. But like in any situation, the Paradise Fire they said three, four years before they even start to break ground. Lahaina looks like one of those situations when might be five to six years before they even start to break ground in some of these areas. It still looks like a war zone. It still looks like Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
Well, I'll tell you what, to the people of Hawaii in general and Maui in particular, Pasta and I are not going to forget about you. That place is just too damn important for us to turn a blind eye to. Pasta, where's the best place for people to catch Maui on fire? Uh, it's Lahaina on fire. The first volume was Lahaina on Pasta on to Go. And the, that's okay. Uh, pasta to Go, the number two, P-A-S-T-A, two and go. Uh, that's where Lahaina on fire is there. It's a brand new channel. We're building it. I'm also going to do my, my daily show there. And the second one should be out about mid-January. I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's a sad situation, but at least we're able to highlight these people's trauma and hopefully get them some help. We appreciate you. My mistake, Lahaina on fire, not Maui on fire, but Maui was on fire. And and they count on you forgetting about them. But uh, there's something in Hawaii that they call the spirit of aloha. And something tells me that during Christmas, the community there will rally together because that's what they do. They're a bunch of really good people. Thanks, Pasta. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. Well, after this break, we'll be back with Gerard Filetti. This is TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Did Joe Biden just defraud the federal government? Is he guilty of theft of services and filing a false document? What am I talking about? Well, Marine One isn't free. Passengers have to be listed on the official passenger manifest and they're billed for the transportation between Joint Base Andrews and the White House. Just as passengers on Air Force One are billed by the Air Force. So who was on the helicopter but wasn't on the manifest today? Well, that would be one Hunter Biden. Can you just imagine the outcry, the calls for impeachment, and likely a criminal and a civil trial against President Donald Trump if it had been Don Jr., Eric, Laura, Ivanka, Jared, Tiffany, or Baron Trump that had hitched a ride for free. We don't need to ask the question. We all know what the hue and cry would be. And again, it's the double standard that is intolerable. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? You have the power of information. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. My next guest is senior counsel at the Lawfare Project and also the author of Frozen Tide. Ladies and gentlemen, Gerard Filetti. It's great to meet you, Gerard. How are you? It seems like the wheels are coming off this American experiment, but I'm hoping that you might be there to help put them back on. How are how, how are things going? Glad to be here. It's been a crazy year and it keeps getting crazier, being kept very busy by everything that's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems fitting that that we'll end this year with uh, with what's going on in my state of Colorado with regard to Donald Trump. Now, when it comes to Donald Trump, personally, 
I don't have much energy one way or the other. I don't think he's the devil and I don't think he's the savior. He's a fascinating case study. I, I, I'm more interested in the response and reaction to him than anything else. And what I've, I'm curious from a, from a legal standpoint, removing Trump from the ballot in Colorado, how does this actually play out? This seems like something that, of course, we've heard the, the talk that it'll get challenged by the Supreme Court. Is this just a tactic or is there actually some teeth to this? In large part, it's a tactic and it's part of the broader strategy that the Democratic Party and to some extent the Republican Party have been engaging in for many years now, which is using the legal system to affect elections. And they do this by challenging the ability of people to be on ballots, challenging the validity of ballots and then challenging the outcome of ballots. Uh, here, what the Democrats are doing, or in what's being done, is a concerted effort across the country, not just in Colorado, to get Donald Trump off the ballot. And the main argument that's being used is that he is an insurrectionist, or he engaged in insurrection, and therefore is ineligible to be a candidate, to be on the ballot. Is this a winning strategy, though? Because it seems to me like in the event that this does go up the chain of command and it gets to the Supreme Court and it becomes overturned, we're going to find ourselves with Donald Trump, the victim, Donald Trump, the martyr, a lot of people rallying support saying, see, they're going to try any tactic they can to get him off of the ballot, to get him uh, out of the candidacy for the president because they fear him so much. In the end, will this backfire on the Democratic Party? There are two differences, though, legally and politically. Legally, it's going to backfire. I expect the Supreme Court to toss this. I expect the Supreme Court to be decisive enough that other challenges in other states will not happen. And that's part of why the Supreme Court needs to take it, by the way, because if you have 50 challenges in 50 states, you might very well have different outcomes in every one. And that presents as big a problem to the American public as it does to Donald Trump. But politically, it's, is where the issue is. Politically, this is both helping Trump, but also helping the Democrats to some extent, because they are keeping pressure on Trump. They are making him spend money on these court cases in every state. They're making him expend energy debating and discussing these lawsuits instead of putting out his policy agenda. And at some point, Americans who are not already convinced whether or not they should vote for him, it impacts them, because if all they're seeing are lawsuits and not hearing policy, they might not be inclined to vote for him. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I wonder now we're starting to hear that there's like a dozen other states that are lining up to uh, to 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 try their hand at, at forcing him off the ballot. Do you think those states are able to do that before the Supreme Court hears this? I'm not quite sure what the process is. How fast can you get something like this to the Supreme Court to rule on it? Is this something that's going to take months or is this uh, can it get fast tracked due to the nature of it? This will get fast-tracked due to the nature of it. The Supreme Court has to decide in the first few days of January whether it's going to take it, and then it'll set an expedited briefing schedule, an argument schedule. So I expect this would be decided in a few months and not let it linger. I think the deadline, probably self-imposed by the Supreme Court, is going to be the start of the primaries, the actual voting, uh, because that's when people need clarity on who is actually on the ballot. As far as other states, I think West Virginia, if I read the news correctly this morning, a federal judge just tossed a similar challenge there. Uh, so we are seeing these challenges being made and not always successfully, but the Supreme Court will be the ultimate decider of what happens. Curious about this. You, you have done quite a bit of work inside the Jewish community. 
what is and I know that you're not the spokesman for the Jewish community at large and that it is not necessarily homogenous in in their uh, opinions on Donald Trump but we have we have streets named after him in Israel we have we have him um you know s- entire subdivisions named after him and then you start to hear some pushback saying well you know maybe the the people of Israel are not as enthusiastically supporting Donald Trump as you might be led to believe what is the temperature inside the Jewish community looking at somebody like Trump now after what we've seen for four years of his presidency, we've seen three years of him being prosecuted, and now as we start to get into a position where he may be the president of the United States for another four years, um, what's the temperature out there in your community? Well, what I've been seeing is increasing support, in part because Trump as president did a lot of good, both the Abraham Accords to start cooling down the rhetoric in the Middle East, but also being very friendly with Israel, moving the capital to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, and just basically having a policy that was more supportive of Israel than other presidents in recent times. Now, the support's continuing for a different reason. I think a lot of people are looking at what's going on with the Hamas war and the explosion of anti-Semitism in America, and they're not seeing much that's being done by current leadership to tamp down on it. And we don't see the National Guard being deployed when we see thousands of pro-Hamas protesters demonstrating. We don't see decisive action being taken, and that actually helps go you know, support Bill for Donald Trump. People see that he was decisive and think that he will be good for the Jewish community. Well, so it's it's sort of uh, it's more of a negative on Biden, and in a sense too that that you're you're seeing a, a lack of of effort on his part, and so by default, Trump can benefit from that. Let's let's stick with Biden just a little bit here. What what do his legal troubles look like in 2024? I mean, Donald Trump is not the only person that's got himself uh, needs to get a lawyer to get things straightened out. The Biden family as a whole has big problems. Is that going to be just a bit too much baggage for the Democratic Party to carry moving into this final, you know, 11 months uh, until the election sort of push to this? Do they discard him due to the legal troubles or are these problems that he can sort out in a courtroom? Well, you know, in, in my lifetime, the only Democratic president that hasn't had a, a a lot of baggage legally and politically was actually Obama. Everyone else had, had to deal with a lot of scandal and a lot of questionable things that they've done, lawsuits, impeachments, uh, and the legal system being used vigorously. I think Biden does have trouble. I think that there will be, th- this impeachment inquiry will move towards impeachment. Uh, you will see Congress, when they get back, assuming that they deal successfully with a budget and the government doesn't shut down, we will see them increasingly move towards getting Hunter Biden on the stand, p- pressing charges uh, because he failed to appear for his deposition. Uh, we, we will see Congress moving full force after Biden. The issue, though, is it's also political to some extent. You want to keep this in the spotlight because there's no way that this is going to get resolved other than an impeachment until Congress ends its term. Yeah, well, we're starting to see um, the tables turned on Biden in regard to talking about throwing him off of the ballot in Texas for his behavior or lack of effort on the southern border crisis is this some sort of is this just political posturing is this is this just some legal warfare that's happening or is this actually more likely to happen to biden to get thrown off of the ballot in texas than than for the supreme court to return with a verdict that trump is uh, off of the ballot permanently in colorado 
Well, for, for good and for bad, I, I don't see much uh, chance of success for getting uh, Biden off the ballot on that basis in Texas. Uh, but it's interesting because it does come back to the general proposition that's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if the Democrats are going to play these games with Donald Trump, then it opens up the floodgates to basically the Republicans doing the same thing to the Democrats. Now, you, you impeach Trump how many times under fraudulent charges? Well, we have legitimate concerns about the Biden family. If perhaps in the past they may have been remedied because oh, it's his son, he's got problems, he's an addict, let's not make a big deal out of it. Now everyone's going after him in part because the, the system's been weaponized. So to keep it impartial, you're going to use the same tactics. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your uh, organization, the Lawfare Project, because this is a term that I hadn't heard uh, until the last couple of years, the concept of lawfare. But then when, once it was brought to my attention, of course, it makes perfect sense. If you've got a war chest, if you've got access to uh, a fleet of attorneys, you can create havoc for somebody that doesn't have the same resources. What is it that brought you guys together to, to, uh, to start this organization? And, and, and where are you guys going from here? Well, Brooke Goldstein, the founder, really had a, a vision when she saw that what's going on in the legal world, both targeting the Jewish community, but America in general, is the use of the legal system as an, to, to attack people, basically, to wage warfare. You sue people to silence them. You sue people to make them spend money on defending themselves and not be able to continue th their efforts. It, it's, a, it's an attack that needs to be defended against, and that's how Lawfare Project started. Brooke saw that this was a big issue that needed to be addressed. And it's also a national security issue when you're using the legal system. It's not just Americans who are using it. It's also the Russian government has used it to go after dissidents. The Chinese government is using it to go after people who disagree with them. It, it's, a, it's a growing problem. And from there, the Lawfare Project more generally works on matters of anti-Semitism, counterterrorism, and national security, uh, protecting the civil rights of the Jewish community. And as we see, that is needed now more than ever. We're seeing nothing but attacks and increase in anti-Semitism that needs to be remedied. And when there's a failure of the government to address it, then we need to get the legal system involved. How would somebody who was unjustly attacked make a, a connection with you to uh, to find some sort of legal support? How is that process handled from you internally on uh, the, look, there's a lot there's a lot of work for you to do. How do you how do you pick and choose where the resources go? Well, we, we pick and choose on the basis of impact litigation and where we can make a difference. We're not looking to, we can't, unfortunately, and that's the reality. We can't, even with a network of over 600 lawyers, we can't help everyone. But where we can make a difference is filing that seminal case that really impacts how the system works. So recently we filed a case against Carnegie Mellon University, uh, where a student was horrifically discriminated for a number of years. And the resolution that we're looking for is a systemic change so that that's no longer an issue at school, so that Jewish students have their civil rights respected. And at the same time, that lawsuit probes whether foreign money, Qatari money, Middle Eastern money, is affecting anti-Semitism and, and what we're seeing anti-Americanism on American campuses. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting component to this is the foreign money defense uh, flowing into to counter your work on this. Um, so where do you um, how how are you guys compensated? Is this pro bono work on your on your part? Are you uh, or does do the proceeds from settlements go back towards funding this? Uh, how how is the how's the money work out on on your end? 
We're a nonprofit and we do work pro bono, so we never charge our clients for anything. Uh, but it's a nonprofit. We fundraise. We have uh, donors who are very generous and see the importance of what we're doing. Uh, sometimes we do get assessed fees, which which go into uh, refunding essentially uh, what we've outlaid for a case. Uh, but the big thing is we are a nonprofit. We're always looking for public support because this is an important issue. Yeah. And where is the best place for people to find the Lawfare Project? The best place is online, as with everything else, at thelawfareproject.org, thelawfareproject.org. And on a side note, since I've got you here, and I'm an author and you're an author, could you tell me a little bit about your book, Frozen Tide? I'm curious to know more about this. Oh, thank you. It, it's been a while, but I'm still uh, I'm still delighted that I had the opportunity to do it. It's it's a thriller. Uh, it deals with a, a terrorist attack on U.S. soil and efforts by the U.S. government, by federal agents, to track down and prevent a larger terror attack. And it's in a way, it's still timely today because what I'm writing about essentially is a threat coming over the border, over the southern border. Uh, and little did we know when I wrote it that that is exactly what we're seeing today. So it, it's it's yeah. still very timely. Well, it it always strikes me that a lot of these fiction books are that are written by people that have a very advanced knowledge of of how the system works, maybe are fiction in a sense, but maybe pointing towards some reality, something that they see. When you were writing this book, my assumption is that you could probably foresee a scenario in which the southern border was used to facilitate some sort of terrorist attack. Obviously, we've all sort of speculated that it, that's what it could be now. Um, is this a blending of uh, truth and fiction a little bit? A good way to hide the truth by uh, masking it with fiction? I mean, is this, is this a, a reality that we should be keeping our eyes on? I think to say, to, to, it's safe to say that there is a, a bit of reality behind this book. And in a way, it's also wish fulfillment. It, it's because in the end, the good guys probably win. I don't want to give away the ending, but it's it, you know, the, the focus is on the hope that the government, that people do the right thing and prevail. And these are issues that we're still grappling with today. Is the government going to secure our borders? Do we face another terrorist attack? What's going on with national security? And through fiction, we can give it, make some points that maybe we couldn't make through nonfiction. Yeah. And well, speaking of the southern border, what do you think the the role of the Lawfare Project will be in uh, supporting some of the states or some of the individuals that are facing some real problems due to uh, the decisions made by the Biden administration? Ultimately, the border issue more than more than anything else, it, it's not just a humanitarian crisis for all involved because these people are coming and they have through great peril, but they have no support when they get here. They're being dumped on the streets with no help. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is it's a national security problem. We don't know who's coming across those borders. And that's what's scary because we have seen people on terrorist watch lists be caught. How many have not been caught? That, that's what we're looking at. And that's where we are contributing our knowledge to pointing this out to Congress and the government and trying to push for change on that because leaving everything else aside, open borders is a danger. We see this in Europe and we don't want that in the United States. Yeah, we see it. It's happening. We're being made to see it. It's on our nightly news. It feels like some part of this is is on purpose for us to watch what's happening. It feels like a setup for a much larger attack, perhaps in the future. And 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 I feel 
It always makes me feel very uncomfortable when I see human beings uh, being used as political pawns, but that's what it feels like. It feels very disgusting. It's not organic. It's being made to happen. We see some some uh, NGOs with fingerprints all over it. But I'll tell you what, I appreciate that there's some place and somebody to talk to like you where they, people can go to help uh, fight this. Uh, so check out thelawfareproject.org to find more information about Gerard Folletti. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. We'll catch you back here sometime in the new year. And big thanks to our first guest, Pasta Jardula. You can check out his documentary, Lahaina on Fire, over on YouTube. Thanks, everybody. Have a Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week.